Hello and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast. This is episode number 24. When will Jesus come back? Today we're talking all about the last days and we're going to summarize the book of Nehemiah. So, good news. Today's episode has no discussion of dung or thighs or anything at all untoward. But there is some bad news, of course. So today's topic, eschatology, which simply means the study of the end times or the last days, might just be more controversial than dung and thighs and other things along those lines. Our focus passage for the day is Matthew chapter 24, and I consider that to be maybe the longest and clearest teaching in the Bible on eschatology, again, the last days, and the return of Jesus. And here's the thing. Um, uh, I love talking about the resurrection as a teacher, as a pastor, preacher, writer. That's my favorite thing in all of the Bible to talk about. But the last days is really, really high up there. I love talking about and studying about the last days, partially because it's an incredible mystery, partially because it's very hopeful. Now, most people want to begin with the book of Revelation when discussing the last days. But the thing is, Revelation is a tricky and difficult book for a variety of reasons. Now, don't get me wrong. It's actually one of my favorite books. I love it. And there's some really amazingly powerful spiritual things in there, especially in the first few chapters, but it is anything but crystal clear and basic. On the other hand, Matthew 24 is pretty clear, even though there's still a lot of controversy and debate about so many aspects of this chapter. Probably the most important aspect of that debate concerns timing. In Matthew 24, is Jesus talking about a far distant future, or is he talking about something that will happen in the lifespan of his disciples? Now, we're also going to be reading together Genesis 25, which tells us about Abraham's second wife and the birth of his grandchildren, Jacob and Esau. Acts 24 has Paul standing trial before Governor Felix, proclaiming his belief in the resurrection of the dead. And, as I said, we finished Nehemiah yesterday, and that gets us to Esther, a brand new book. Which means we have to, we finished our second book together. We finished Ezra, we finished Nehemiah, and we've begun a long-standing tradition on this podcast, at least, I don't know, uh two weeks old, that when we finish a book, we summarize it. So here is a summary of the book of Nehemiah. Chronologically speaking, and this might surprise some of you because of where it's positioned in most of your Bibles, the book of Nehemiah is actually the last historical book of the Old Testament. Although Esther comes after Nehemiah in most Bibles... The events of Esther happen prior to the events of Nehemiah, somewhere roughly in the neighborhood of the timeline of, say, oh, I I don't know, right around Ezra 6 and Ezra 7, somewhere in, in that neighborhood. Nehemiah was a contemporary of the prophet Malachi, the titular character of the last book of the Old Testament. Nehemiah, a descendant of the Jewish people, was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, the Persian king. Upon hearing distressing conditions in his homeland, Nehemiah appeals to the king for permission to come back, which is granted. 
Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem and finds the city defenseless and under scrutiny by several nearby enemies and critics. Nehemiah organizes both the rebuilding and defense of Jerusalem and also reinstates the biblical festival of booths or tabernacles, which is a joyful feast and celebration. Now, Nehemiah was a mighty man of prayer. Some of the best prayers in the Bible are in Nehemiah chapter 1 and chapter 9. He was also uncompromising, might be a nice word, in his call to holiness, physically attacking some Jewish men who disobeyed God's laws. Nehemiah successfully completed the walls around Jerusalem and enabled that city and its people to begin to reclaim their identity and some measurement of prosperity. So, shout-outs today to Michelle Hafner from Florida, who left an encouraging comment on our website, which I encourage you to check out, BibleReadingPodcast.com. Thank you, Michelle, for that. Uh, The website has the show notes and the things we talk about, the quotes, a few pictures, and scriptures, and all that kind of good stuff, I'd love for you to go there. If you have a question you'd like us to cover on an upcoming episode of the Bible Reading Podcast, just go to the website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, leave a comment on any post. I'll see it. It's not like thousands of people are commenting, so I'll see it pretty quickly, and I will add your question to our upcoming document for questions we're going to cover. Also, shout out to Bible scholar Og Keep, who had an interesting observation on yesterday's pod about Abraham's servant. And this is what Dr. Og says. An interesting point about this mission, if this trusted servant of Abraham was Eleazar of Damascus from Genesis 15, then seeking a wife for Abraham's son is an action against his self-interest. It shows that his love for Abraham exceeded his own ambitions. That's well spotted, Dr. Keep. That's absolutely correct, because Eleazar of Damascus was going to be the heir of Abraham, and in finding a wife for Isaac... If it was the same guy, he really was acting against his own self-interests, and yet he did it, and I believe God will bless him for that. We also have some reader feedback. This is from a Mr. Tuberville in Auburn, Alabama. Dear Sir, we object to the use of the word titular yesterday in your podcast when talking about Nehemiah. Surely a better and more understandable word could have been chosen. Well, Tommy, you make a great point. I think eponymous, in retrospect, would have been a better choice than titular. My apologies. And now, let's read Matthew 24 together. Matthew 24, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. As Jesus left and was going out of the temple, his disciples came up and called his attention to its buildings. He replied to them, Do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus replied to them, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. 
For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these events are the beginnings of the labor pains. Then they will hand you over to be persecuted. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all of the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down to get things out of his house, and a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your escape pain may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for at that time there will be great distress, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved. But those days will be cut short because of the elect. If anyone tells you then, see, here is the Messiah, or over there, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Take note, I have told you in advance. See if they tell you, hey, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Or see, he's in the storerooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the skies and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all of the peoples of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding grain with a hand mill. One will be taken and one left. 
Therefore, be alert, since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you are also to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master has put in charge of his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions." But if that wicked servant says in his heart, My master is delayed, and starts to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, that servant's master will come on a day he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." So, wow, I guess is really all you can say with that passage. Uh, it's stunning. It, it really is stunning. In discussing Matthew 24, let me draw your attention to a very frustrating aspect of this chapter. And it's obviously not Jesus's fault, but I am uh, frustrated with the disciples because their question was so imprecise that it has left many scholars confused and debating for hundreds of years. What do they say in Matthew 24? They, three, they say, tell us, Jesus, when will these things happen? And what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That's two or three questions that I wish they hadn't asked all at once. With hindsight, we can see that. It's two or three totally different questions. Question number one asks, when the temple will be destroyed. Well, now, looking back in history, we know the answer is 70 AD. Question number two is the far more significant one for us. I'm not saying question number one wasn't significant for the people alive at the time. It was massively. Question number two, though, more important for people living today, and that is, what is the sign of the return of Jesus and the end of the age? I know I am going to way oversimplify this, but there are five main viewpoints among biblical scholars that attempt to answer this question, and honestly, dozens, if not hundreds of sub-viewpoints that can fall under these, and really kind of maybe even other ones I'm not aware of or Maybe I don't think they're important enough to say. But anyway, we're going to look at five major interpretations of Christian end times teaching. Number one, and the only reason I have this number one is because uh, there's a graphic on the website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, that you can go look at. And if what I say doesn't make a lot of sense, maybe the graphic will help you understand it. So the first viewpoint, and you know, nerd alert for big words here. I'm going to try to simplify as much as possible. Viewpoint number one, historic premillennialism, historic premillennialism or post-tribulational premillennialism. Same concept. This view believes that Jesus will return to the earth prior to what is called the millennium or the millennial reign, which is a thousand year reign of Jesus on the earth in the heavenly city called the New Jerusalem. So Jesus, according to this view, historic premillennialism will return 
before the millennial reign and after a seven-year period of great wrath, judgment, trouble, and punishment that we call, and the Bible calls, the Great Tribulation. Some historic premillennialists believe in a rapture. What is a rapture, you say? It is a catching up of God's people into the air with a returning Jesus. In the view of historic premillennialism, the New Testament church is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. So the church is sort of now become Israel. Now the second view, dispensational premillennialism. Let, let's call it, we can call it the left behind view because if you ever read, read those uh, extremely popular books, this is the view put forth in the left behind series. This view believes Jesus will return to the earth before a time of trouble known as the great tribulation. He will rapture or catch up his church, all faithful believers living and dead, and then return with them to heaven where they will wait seven years. And after seven years, on which time the earth will experience the great tribulation of wrath and and judgment, Jesus will return again with his people and reign for 1,000 years from his holy city on earth, along with all of the saints who left with him, and perhaps some who have been saved during the seven-year great tribulation. This view is called pre-millennial because it places the return of Christ before that thousand-year millennium. It's called dispensational because it's founded on the beliefs of dispensationalism, which, you know, just Google that for more details if you're interested at all. The key belief here is that this view believes that Jesus will spare the church from God's wrath and tribulation by rapturing them from the earth before the great tribulation. This viewpoint sees the second coming happening in two stages, a first second coming for the church and then a second second coming with the church, a first second coming for the church, and a second second coming or a return second coming with the church. In that view, Israel and the church are two distinct entities, and God has two distinct redemption plans for both of them. View number three. I know, I know, this is a little deep, but trust me, it'll it'll come together. It'll make sense. The post-millennial view does not view the millennium reign or the millennium as a literal thousand-year period, but more of an extended lengthy period of time. It's symbolic, in other words. In that view, Jesus reigns on the earth spiritually from heaven, and his followers increase his influence gradually all across the globe. The good news of Jesus goes forth in the kingdom of Jesus, and, and his fame gradually grows on earth until such a time as Jesus returns and then immediately initiates the judgment of the wicked in the eternal state. The, that view is called post-millennial because Jesus returns after the millennium, which is, again, not a thousand-year little reign of Jesus on the earth, but an increase of his influence on earth that culminates in his return. Fourth view, millennialism. That's millennialism with an A in front of it. Or some people prefer nuke millennialism. This view holds that the kingdom of God on earth began with the resurrection of Jesus or the founding of the church right around that time, and that Jesus now reigns at the right hand of the Father over the church. This viewpoint does not see the millennial reign as being literal like the post-millennial view. It agrees with that. 
And it's more of a spiritual and somewhat symbolic reign of Jesus that is happening now. Most amillennialists believe that Jesus will physically return at the end of this church age or this now millennium and inaugurate or begin the eternal state. The amillennial view sees the victory of Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom as a two-stage event. Stage one happened in the first century with the resurrection of Jesus and the establishment of the church at Pentecost. Stage two will be when Jesus physically returns. The between state is often called the already but not yet phase. When uh, we see the victory of Jesus spiritually by faith, but when he returns, we will tangibly see it by sight. So it's the already but not yet stage. Now, the fifth view is the preterist view or the partial preterist view, P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T. The preterist viewpoint believes that some or all events that have that have been foretold by the Bible have already happened. The belief that some events foretold by the Bible have already happened is partial preterism partial preterism, the the belief that all events foretold by the Bible have already happened, including the return of Jesus, uh, that is full preterism. The full preterist view holds that the return of Jesus, the final judgment, and really everything prophesied in the New Testament, all of that was fulfilled in AD 70 when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. It's fairly rare to find an evangelical scholar who's a full preterist, but there's a lot out there who are partial preterists. They think that some of the things spoken of in the future in the Bible have been fulfilled. And, you know, it's been 2,000 years, so there's certainly some possibilities to that. They believe that the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD fulfilled some major parts of prophetic scripture, but the final judgment and full physical return of Jesus has not happened yet. So, are you, are you dizzy yet? I imagine some of you will be surprised at the number of views of the last days that people actually have. Please know that many people will believe that I just oversimplified things and left really significant viewpoints out and really significant chunks of those viewpoints out, which is likely true. Consider this, though. The church has long been unclear about when the second coming of Jesus would occur, and there's a really, 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 really good reason for that. When Jesus was here, he told his disciples that only his father knew the time and date of his second coming. He said it. He didn't even know the time and date of his second coming. In fact, in case you just missed it, we read it. Matthew twenty four thirty six. Jesus says, Now concerning that day and hour of his return, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. Now, I'm going to make an assumption. I think it's a pretty good assumption. I'm going to make the assumption that the Father did not reveal that time and date to the other writers of Scripture after Jesus, like Paul and John and Luke, etc., which means that any attempt to find the exact date of the return of Jesus in the Scripture is absolutely silly. You might be thinking, well, the Word of God was written by people under the influence of the Holy Spirit, 
And you're exactly right. I completely agree. But going on what Jesus said, the Holy Spirit did not know the time and date of Jesus' return either. Only the Father. Now, I note here with some amusement that even in the hundreds AD, in other words, a little over a hundred years after the resurrection, there was at that time, in that early day of the church, there was quite a bit of difference of opinion among good and godly Christians as to the issues we're talking about today, the time and date of the return of Jesus and how it's going to happen. We know this because there was a writer, in he lived in the 100s, and he wrote this book probably around 160 AD. His name was Justin Martyr, and he wrote of a dialogue he had with him and a Jew named Trypho. And this is what he says about the second coming. He says, I and many others are of the premillennial opinion and believe that such will take place as you assuredly are aware. But on the other hand, I signify to you that many who belong to the pure and pious faith and are true Christians think otherwise. In other words, 160 AD, Christians are still having differing opinions about the return of Jesus. And again, I'm telling you it's because that information is not in the Bible. So the next time somebody writes a book, uh, and when I was a kid, the big book was 88 Reasons Why Jesus Is Going to Return in 1988. And then, obviously, that didn't happen. So it was 89 Reasons Jesus Is Going to Return in 89. And the Jehovah's Witnesses were saying it was all going to happen in the 1920s. And this guy on the radio out west, I don't know, 2013, he was saying it was going to happen then. They don't know. And the reason they don't know is because they try to get their information from, I don't know, some sort of mathematical interpretation of the Bible. And you can't get information out of the Bible that's not in the Bible because Jesus didn't know when he was coming back. His apostles and disciples didn't know when he was coming back. And according to what Jesus said, the Holy Spirit didn't know when he was coming back. So that information is only in the mind of God, not in the Bible. So I don't know. That's my opinion. I think that's pretty clear from scripture. I think all those books that purport, books and teachers who say they know when Jesus is coming back, Just run away from people like that. They're hucksters. LifeRay Research in 2016 did a survey of 1,000 Protestant American pastors to ask them what view of the end times they held to. And I think the results are pretty interesting. Now, if you are a nerd uh, like me and you want to read the whole study, just go to the website, BibleRatingPodcast.com, and you can see some screenshots there and uh, a link to the full study. But Let me very, very briefly summarize it. So among these 1,000 pastors that were surveyed, 1% of them believed in a preterist view that most of what is uh, prophesied in the Bible has already happened. 36%, this was the majority, were pre-tribulation, that is the left-behind view, the church is going to be raptured before the tribulation, there's a two-stage return of Jesus, Uh, 4% were mid-tribulation, which is the viewpoint that the church will go through half of the tribulation and then be raptured. 4% were pre-wrath, 
which is the viewpoint. <laughs> I know this is confusing. It's okay. 4% were pre-wrath, which is the viewpoint that the church will go through the tribulation up until the point where the punishment of God on the people of the earth amps up, called the wrath of God, and then they will be saved from that. 18% were of the post-tribulation view, which is the viewpoint that the church will be... um that the the rapture, if it happens, will happen after the tribulation, that the church will be on earth during the tribulation, then the end will come and the millennial reign will happen. At 25% were of the belief that the concept of the rapture is not to be taken literally. It's more of a spiritual thing. And then 8% said, I don't believe any of those, so I have a different view. One other part of the survey that was interesting. Among those 1,000 pastors, the majority view was a premillennial view. In other words, that Jesus would return prior to the thousand-year reign. The second most prevalent view was the amillennial view. In other words, that the millennium was largely symbolic and that the kingdom of God has already happened now. That's 31% of of the pastors. 11%, which is actually very high. I had no idea that post-millennialism was this prevalent. 11% of the pastors believed in some form of post-millennialism. In other words, that Christians now are essentially, by spreading the gospel, are, are, uh, expanding the spiritual, somewhat symbolic kingdom of Jesus and preparing for his second return. 8% said, uh, none of these. And only 4% said not sure. That seems like a really small percentage considering the level of um, uh, how, how many different viewpoints there are out there and how difficult it is to know exactly what the right one is. So I'll say this. I am not of the 4% that say not sure. Maybe I should be. We used to joke in uh, theology classes way back in the day that some people are pan-millennialists, meaning that it'll pan out however it pans out. Well, I am of the post-tribulation viewpoint, and I'm pretty convinced by Scripture in that, although I don't know that anybody at the church I'm pastoring now, been there for almost two years, they probably would have no idea. I teach on the end times, but I don't give my opinion a lot. And as you just heard from the surveys we read, there's probably good reason for that. But I will give you the primary reason I believe that the church will go through tribulation. Well, for one, Jesus in John 16, 33 says, in this world, you will have tribulation. Now, he's not talking about the great tribulation, but that does indicate Christians will go through the tribulation. That's not the main part of my argument. The main reason I believe that the church will go through the great tribulation is because I've looked in Scripture, and I've looked in Scripture, and I've looked in Scripture, and I can't find any indication that Jesus comes back twice. Once to get his church, and then take him back to heaven, and then a second time. I can't find any indication of a two-stage second coming, in other words. 
Instead, I find things like what we see in Mark 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And and look, read through Matthew 24, read it through several times, read through Mark 13, read it through several times, because that's the Mark version of this uh, sermon of Jesus, which we call the Olivet Discourse. It was a sermon preached on the Mount of Olives, uh, not the Sermon on the Mount, this is the, the Olivet Discourse, or read through Luke 21, same thing. I don't see any of those times where Jesus seems to say or imply or leave room for two second comings. Instead, he says he's going to come, he's going to gather his elect, and it seems to all happen at one time. But you know what? You don't have to agree with me on that, because here's the thing. As we go through the Bible... We're going to get to other passages, some of which are used by pre-tribulation people as foundational, some of which are used by partial preterist people as foundational, some by amillennialists, and some by historic premillennialists like myself. But this is important. This is really important. When Jesus returns is not the important thing, despite the fact that all of us focus on it, despite the fact that that's what sells the books, that that's what gets everybody got everybody in Christendom's attention, and despite the fact that we debate the timing of the second coming the most. If it was important for us to know precisely when the second coming would happen, I suppose we'd know. The when is not important, though. So what is? What is the key, most important thing about the teaching of the last days? And the answer is very simple. Readiness. You see it clearly almost every time Jesus teaches us about the second coming. For instance, you see that basically his summary of his teaching in Matthew 24, 44, when he says, Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Regardless of your view, the command is be ready. Whether you're a millennial pre-trib, post-trib, or even a preterist, it doesn't matter a huge amount if you are truly ready for eternity. What does readiness look like? Well, good news, because Jesus covers that question over and over again. For instance, like in Luke chapter 12, verse 35, when he says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the son of man is coming in an hour you do not expect. And by that, I take it to mean 
none of us has it exactly right. It will be a, a surprise. And the way we handle it is we're always dressed and ready and awake and serving the king and serving his kingdom. And that's the big takeaway. Anytime we talk about the last days, it's not the when is he going to come. We're not going to know. Not even the cleverest people in the world are going to know. You're not going to know. I'm not going to know. We're not going to figure it out. He's going to surprise us. Now, will there be indications? I believe so. And then we'll cover that at some point. Will we have an idea? Maybe. Regardless, we're dressed for action. We're awake and ready. Okay, so that was a super long discussion, and that means two long episodes in a row. I I apologize. I mean to keep this really short. Uh, I, so I plan on making the next two episodes pretty short to sort of, uh, make up for this. Stay tuned to see if that is uh, possible to hold to that plan. The problem is, and I hope you can sympathize, the problem is that the Bible is just so deep and interesting that the fact is there's always something fascinating to explore and it's hard to, uh, not go deep into it. All right. Genesis chapter 25, verse one. Abraham's other wife and son. Abraham had taken another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimram, Joxon, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Joxon fathered Sheba and Dedan. Dedan's sons were the Ashurim, the Letushim, and the Leumim. And Midian's sons were Elpha, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Edah. All these were sons of Keturah. Abraham gave everything he owned to Isaac, but Abraham gave gifts to the sons of his concubines, and while he was still alive, he sent them eastward, away from his son Isaac, to the land of the east. This is the length of Abraham's life, 175 years. He took his last breath and died at a good old age, old and contented, and he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre, in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hethite. This was the field that Abraham had bought from the Hethites. Abraham was buried there with his wife Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who lived near Beer Lahai Roy. These are the family records of Abraham's son Ishmael, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's slave, bore to Abraham. These are the names of Ishmael's sons. Their names, according to the family records, are Nebaioth, Ishmael's firstborn, then Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massah, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nephish, and Kedima. These are Ishmael's sons, and these are their names by their settlements and encampments, 12 leaders of their clans. This is the length of Ishmael's life, 137 years. He took his last breath and died and was gathered to his people. And they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt as you go toward Asher. He stayed near all his relatives. These are the family records of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took his wife Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless, and the Lord was receptive to his prayer, and his wife Rebekah conceived, but the children inside her struggled with each other, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, 
Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When her time came to give birth, there were indeed twins in her womb. The first one came out red-looking, covered with hair like a fur coat, and they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out grasping Esau's heel with his hand, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. When the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter, an outdoorsman, but Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field exhausted. He said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. That is why he was also named Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, said Esau, I'm about to die, so what good is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up, and went away. So Esau despised his birthright. Esther chapter 1, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Cush. In those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff, the army of Persia, Medea, the nobles, and the officials from the provinces. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. At the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and violet linen hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty. The drinking was according to royal decree. There are no restrictions. Eek. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of King Ahasuerus's palace. On the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from the wine, Ahasuerus commanded Mehuman, Bithsa, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who personally served him, to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by his eunuchs. The king became furious and his anger burned within him. The king consulted the wise men who understood the times, for it was his normal procedure to confer with experts in law and justice. The most trusted ones were Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Mimukan. They were the seven officials of Persia and Media, Medea who had personal access to the king and occupied the highest positions in the kingdom. 
the king asked, According to the law, what should be done with Queen Vashti, since she refused to obey King Ahasuerus's command that was delivered by the eunuchs? Mimikan said in the presence of the king and his officials, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but all the officials and the peoples who are in every one of King Ahasuerus's provinces. For the queen's action will become public knowledge to all women and cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Ahasuerus ordered Queen Vashti brought before him, but she did not come. Before this day is over, the noble women of Persia and Medea who hear about the queen's act will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resorting in more contempt and fury. If it meets the king's approval, he should personally issue a royal decree. Let it be recorded in the laws of Persia and Medea, so that it cannot be revoked. Vashti is not to enter King Ahasuerus's presence, and her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. The decree the king issues will be heard throughout his vast kingdom, so all women will honor their husbands from the greatest to the least. The king and his counselors approved the proposal, and he followed Memucan's advice. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each ethnic group in its own language, that every man should be the master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. We are keeping in mind here that King Ahasuerus is not a follower of God or a Christian king, and therefore we don't necessarily have to defend or discuss his actions. He's a Persian king. Acts chapter 24, verse 1. Five days later, Ananias the high priest came down with some elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. These men presented their case against Paul to the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus began to accuse him and said, We enjoy great peace because of you, and reforms are taking place for the benefit of this nation because of your foresight. We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with utmost gratitude. But so that I will not burden you any further, I request that you would be kind enough to give us a brief hearing, for we have found this man to be a plague, an agitator among all the Jews throughout the Roman world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to desecrate the temple, and so we apprehended him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to discern the truth about these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews also joined in the attack, alleging that these things were true. When the government, when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, Because I know you have been a judge of this nation for many years, I am glad to offer my test, my defense in what concerns me. You can verify for yourself that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. They didn't find me arguing with anyone or causing a disturbance among the crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or anywhere in the city. Neither can they prove the charges they are now making against me. But... 
I admit this to you. I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way which they call a sect, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. I have a hope in God, which these men also themselves accept that there will be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. I always strive to have a clear conscience toward God and men. After many years, I came to bring charitable gifts and offerings to my people. While I was doing this, some Jews from Asia found me ritually purified in the temple without a crowd and without any uproar. It is they who ought to be here before you to bring charges if they have anything against me, or let these men here state what wrongdoing they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Other than this one statement I shouted while standing among them, Today I am on trial before you concerning the resurrection of the dead. Since Felix was well concerned about the way, he adjourned the hearing, saying, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion keep Paul under guard, though he could have some freedom, and that he should not prevent any of his friends from meeting his needs. Several days later, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and listened to him on the subject of faith in Christ Jesus. Now, as he spoke about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became afraid and replied, Leave for now, for when I have an opportunity, I'll call for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him some money, so he sent for him quite often and conversed with him. After two years had passed, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and because Felix wanted to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul in prison. And that, my friends, is the word of the Lord. I hope that it is an encouragement to you, that it points you to Jesus, and that it does the same thing for me, and that... We will make a habit and a lifestyle out of daily reading the word together. God bless you. Godspeed.